Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. After about 25 years worth of accusations of sexual misconduct against R&B legend R. Kelly, uh, he may be about to face legal consequences again. Lifetime aired a six-part docuseries called Surviving R. Kelly, where they chronicled a lot of his early career and just all of these allegations that he's been facing over the years. Officials now in Georgia have started investigating him, and in Illinois, officials have asked for anybody that has any information regarding any of these stories to come forward. They said, you know, nothing can be done without witnesses and the victims coming forward. So they're really reaching out to see if R. Kelly has done anything more than what's already been reported. We spoke to David Mack. He's a reporter for BuzzFeed News. And we start off by talking about what is going on in this so-called sex cult that he has going on in his Georgia home where he's keeping women against their will. The sex cult story was one that BuzzFeed News broke back in 2017 as well. As you said, the documentary explored that. There are a bunch of parents who have told police that their adult daughters are being held captive, to use their words, that they've been brainwashed by this man and they're being held both in one of his properties in Georgia, in Atlanta, and in Chicago as well. And that he's using them in a kind of, as you to use your word, sex cultish kind of way, requiring sexual services over them and controlling every aspect of their lives. Some of the women who uh, were involved in that in the past spoke to BuzzFeed News in 2017 and were also involved in this documentary, Surviving R. Kelly, as you mentioned. And as you said, this has been going on for many years now. There's been allegations about sexual misconduct and sexual abuse involving him. Of course, famously, he was acquitted in a child pornography case several years ago. He famously married the singer Leah when she was 15 years old and this documentary has sort of thrust his name back into the headlines again and also it appears now back into law enforcement's attention because yesterday we were able to confirm that the prosecutor's office in uh, the Fulton County which is in Atlanta has been uh, reaching out to people who appeared in the documentary to try to start guess an investigation there in the very early stages it sounds like but also the uh, Cook County State's Attorney in Illinois in Chicago there has put out a public plea for information for people to come forward because, as she said, her office has received a ton of information since the documentary aired and that they want uh, more anyone else with information to come forward. And she said in particular, they've been in touch with two families who believe that their loved ones may be with Kelly. So lots of movement here in the last couple of days. Some of the women that have been allegedly in the sex cult and whatnot, they spoke to outlets like TMZ and have said that they're perfectly fine, that they're not brainwashed. But the families don't buy that at all. So, yeah, let's talk about this one woman in particular, uh, Joycelyn Savage. And she was featured in our story in 2017. Her parents, Jay and Tim Savage, or John Dillon and Tim Savage, spoke to BuzzFeed News at the time and spoke to the police, fearful that their daughter had become brainwashed and and trapped by this man. They uh, were the ones whose lawyer I spoke to yesterday who told me, who was able to confirm that the DA's office had reached out to him to start gathering uh, contact information. But Joycelyn has an interesting story. She she met him at a concert with her family several years ago, 2015. 
2015 and was invited with him backstage to begin pursuing a music career with him. They exchanged numbers and fairly soon she left her family. Her family say basically she cut off all contact with them after this happened. She went from being a normal relationship to cutting off all contact. And after our story came out, you may remember she appeared in two videos that were leaked to TMZ in which she sort of publicly came forward and told everyone to stop worrying about her, that she was fine. But at the time, her father said he wasn't happy with the videos that she released. He said that it was clear she wasn't herself, that she was being controlled. There was even evidence, he said, that there was a shadow in the room that was moving across her, indicating that someone else, perhaps R. Kelly, was in the room as she was recording that video. So she's very much central to this whole story. Talk to us a little bit about how R. Kelly has been able to skirt a lot of this criticism for so long. I mean, he's a legend in the R&B world. I mean, there's countless songs that people love. And a lot of people are put in this weird position now. It's like, hey, I'm still a fan of R. Kelly's music, but now they're being confronted with all this stuff all over again. There's radio stations that have pulled his uh, music catalog from their stations. Lady Gaga is facing pressure to confirm R. Kelly because she did a song with him in 2013. What's going on with all of this? Well, so I think that question could be asked to be fairly about any of the powerful men that we've seen in entertainment over the last year and a half get exposed or have allegations come out against them, really, to be honest. Our story landed in July 2017. It was by Jim DeRogatis, a Chicago reporter, who contributed to BuzzFeed. You've got to remember that was a few months before the Weinstein stories and exposés that began the kind of Me Too movement that we see, that we've seen since then, where uh, there's very public reckoning, I think it's fair to say, with artists and celebrities and actors and producers and writers and the works that they produce. And people are thinking about them a lot differently than perhaps they were a few years ago. So if you ask, you know, how did he get away with it for all these years or how did his music kind of endure for all these years? I think you have to, you know, recognize that the last year and a half has reshaped the public consciousness in a way that perhaps we hadn't seen in years before. And I certainly think there is a movement now since the Time's Up movement and the Me Too movement to look at R. Kelly differently. There is the uh, Mute R. Kelly campaign that's going around now where uh, people are trying to convince radio stations and uh, streaming platforms to uh, stop playing his music. And you're seeing arguably uh, more success with some of those now. I know I have a reporter who's speaking to some radio uh, DJs around the country who are telling him that they have sort of either silently or publicly stopped playing his music. So I think it's going to be interesting to see with this documentary and the public exposure that it's generating just what the reaction will be now compared to what it was just a couple of years ago, but also, you know, as many as you said, sort of 10 to 20 years ago as well. David Mack, Deputy Director for Breaking News at BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. There's a huge island of garbage that is floating halfway between Hawaii and California. It's called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. It's made up of 1.8 trillion pieces of plastic and weighs 88,000 tons. It's a huge problem there, and people have been trying to figure out what to do about it, how to clean it up. There was a startup called Ocean Cleanup. They had aspirations of capturing all that trash, bringing it to land. So they created this big floating system That was a 2,000-foot floating series of connected tubes that was supposed to corral all of the trash, collect it in a big net, bring it to shore, and then you can recycle it or do whatever you're going to do with it at that point. It launched last year to some good fanfare, but now it's broken. The whole system failed. The big piece snapped off of it. They had to tow it to Hawaii so they can do repairs on it. We spoke to Matt Simon. He's a science writer at Wired. And we started off by talking about what the whole goal of ocean cleanup was 
and where it went wrong. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch is a total mess and total disaster. Because of ocean currents, it's where a lot of the plastic in the world ends up. And it's a maybe a bit of a misnomer that it's a patch. It's actually pretty widespread. It's not like you can walk along an island of plastic. It's spread out over a very large area, but it is this concentration of plastics that have made their way into the ocean. So the idea here with ocean cleanup was to take, as you had mentioned, a U-shaped 600-meter uh, long tube that is itself plastic um, <laughs> and to have it float along on the currents with the plastic, the idea being that the plastic would get caught in that U-shape and a support vessel would come out periodically and pick up that trash. So in November, unfortunately, the startup announced that the thing wasn't really working and the plastic was maybe coming into the U, but then moving out. Part of the problem seems to be that the plastic is moving far faster than the device itself, which is among the many concerns that oceanographers had in the run-up to the launch of this device. They are very skeptical this could actually work, but Ocean Cleanup went ahead with things, and that was before the thing actually snapped. Uh, they announced on New Year's Eve that a 16-meter-long piece at the end of the tube had popped off, not because of some massive storm, but because of a normal wear and tear. And that is very concerning given that you want this thing at 600 meters long and costs many millions of dollars to be able to survive something like normal wear and tear. This is no small undertaking. The startup raised $40 million from donors and companies. People were putting a lot of time and energy and money into this. I think the CEO of Ocean Cleanup said that, hey, this is kind of a beta version. You know, we're testing it. So this is not a failure right now. They are saying that. But in the run up to the launch of the device and as the device has been working up until recently when it snapped, oceanographers have been saying, listen, this is a misunderstanding of how the ocean works, how plastic works out in the ocean. Because as I mentioned, given the physics of it all, a giant 600 meter long tube is going to move slower than the plastic is out there. So the plastic is just going to keep escaping from the device. Beyond the engineering problems, uh, it's tough to get a pipe that big to survive out in the very difficult conditions in the ocean. It just seems to be a fundamental misunderstanding of how plastic works. And scientists have been warning about this, but Ocean Cleanup proceeded anyway. We're talking about how it's a concentration of trash that's really coming from all over the world. The bulk of it comes from China and other Asian countries and the ocean currents carry it all along the world and then it concentrates there right in between Hawaii and California. Another problem that a lot of people were saying with the ocean cleanup model was that it had a like a, a nine foot skirt that would extend beyond that, you know, the top side of the barge to collect the trash. The problem is a lot of the times when the plastic breaks up, it ends up sinking to the ocean floor. So it's not going to even catch a lot of that stuff. That's another thing the scientists were warning about is that they don't have a very good understanding of where plastic is in the ocean, uh, in the water column, what depths, that sort of thing. But as you mentioned, it, it does sink to the bottom, but it also kind of swirls around in that middle area, not the surface where the cleanup is taking place, but below that. And that's typically these very small pieces of plastic, which 
tend to be very dangerous for ocean life, things like fish that will eat them and accumulate in their bodies. So by scraping along the surface, the device is really only picking up a very small fraction of the plastic. And that's given that it actually works. And clearly it, it did not uh, in its current state. Eventually, the nonprofit said they want to have as many as 60 of these devices to help clean up the Great Pacific Garbage Patch who knows how what's going to develop now that the first system has broken. They need to make repairs and get out there again. But what are people saying about how to actually help this problem? I mean, plastics in the ocean is so huge. I read somewhere that people were saying, let's spend 95% of our time and energy on not having plastics in the ocean in the first place, and then let's spend 5% of our time and energy and money on actually cleaning it up. Exactly. So a primary problem with the Ocean Cleanups plan is that even if you are able to pick up plastic out of the sea, we humans are just going to dump more in it. We are doing terrible things to this planet with plastic, and it's not just an Asia problem. It's all over the world. America produces a ton of trash on its own. So scientists are saying, listen, we don't have a technological fix here. Uh, the ocean cleanup doesn't seem to be a good idea, but we don't have any other ideas, really. And the, it really comes down to prevention. So stopping plastic from getting into the ocean in the first place. And there are ways to do that. There's, there's you know, you legislate better recycling laws. Uh, in Baltimore Harbor, actually, they have these two barges that are essentially giant water wheels that pick up trash that comes along. And over the course of, I believe, just four or five years, they've collected something like a thousand tons of plastic before it reaches the sea outside of Baltimore. Yeah, so, I looked up some videos of those and they're actually pretty cool. They have cute big eyeballs. So, you know, they look like a, a kind of a face or something. And it, it's a very simple process. It just scoops the trash out. And as you said, before it spills out into the ocean. They're extremely cute. I think one is named Professor Trash Wheel because why not? But, you know, unfortunately, that is the extent of the technological fix that we have here. At the moment, there just isn't a good technological fix for this problem other than tackling it from a preventive perspective. Matt Simon, science writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you for having me. Despite the government shutdown, the economy still seems to be churning along. It's the tightest labor market in decades, and companies are still looking for ways to attract and retain new workers. And now they're willing to pay for your college degree. This is not necessarily a new thing. The changeup now is that companies are paying for it upfront and in full. We spoke to Kelsey G. She's a reporter for The Wall Street Journal about how to take advantage of these programs and get a free college education. We started off by talking about how these new programs differ from the old reimbursement models. They're paying upfront and they're also oftentimes paying in full, which makes a huge difference for folks who maybe don't even have the magic numbers, $5,250, $5,250. That was the tax maximum in the past for tuition reimbursement programs that they would pay out of pocket and then get a check several weeks or months later from their employer, sometimes tied to certain strings like having to get straight A's or it has to be in a specific area that's beneficial to your employer, like in tech or something like that. These new programs look very different in the freedom that they give employees to study whatever they want and pursue the entire degree, not just like a Photoshop class here or there. When I was going to school, I had friends that were working at Starbucks and their policies could very well have changed by now, but theirs was a reimbursement program. And I think it needed to be in certain business management classes that, that you had to take. But, you know, it's difficult that people are looking for financial aid. And sometimes that's that doesn't really help out when it's a reimbursement after the fact, because a lot of times people need the money up front. 
And, and I didn't know that that number was 5250 a year. So yeah, it helps now that these companies are willing to pay in full. Who are some of the companies that are getting into this practice? It's a range of companies offering this to mostly frontline workers like Disney and you mentioned Starbucks. They also have a similar program. They're one of the earliest companies that offered something like this, which we didn't go too far into detail with in this story because it's been written about a bit in the past, but theirs is really interesting. Their partnership with Arizona State University. There's also Discover Financial Services, the credit card company, Taco Bell, Chipotle has a program like this. AT&T have programs like this. Lyft, Uber, like so many companies that have hourly workers, whether they're employees or even just contractors, are finding that it's a really important benefit to offer to differentiate themselves in this job market. And the partnerships that these companies have with the schools mm-hmm. is really important, really integral to this whole thing. A lot of times payments are made directly to the school, so it kind of takes that out of the students' hands, but these are really important parts of how the whole thing works. How do the schools and the businesses get in touch with each other? Many of these deals have been brokered by third-party nonprofits. There's one in particular, Guild Education, which I've talked to you know, for this story and for others in the past, and they have a really cool mission of trying to make education benefits essentially like the 2019 version of healthcare insurance plans from like the 1950s, 60s, and 70s as employers tried to compete and offer better and better health services to their employees in order to attract the best talent. Nonprofits like Guild have this attitude that if we can make it as easy as possible to find good universities that offer the kinds of programs that would fit the needs of an employer partner, then we're able to make something really special happen for sometimes millions of employees potentially. And it's crazy the amount of cost savings that you really see once you start looking at numbers. And it also kind of proves that the price of education can come down because when these companies make deals, the cost of a bachelor's degree from a four-year institution is about 33000 a year. And sometimes they can negotiate this stuff to 6000 to $10,000 in some mm-hmm. cases. Yeah. And that's a huge piece of this story too. You know, as someone who's been writing about higher education and workforce development for, you know, a year and a half now or so, it's become really clear that universities are struggling too to try to figure out what is their place in this new economy where the lifespan of skills is so short and the needs of employers are so high in especially industries like healthcare or in tech that if they're able to broker a deal in which they're able to fill their classrooms up with a bunch of corporate employees and sell a bunch of degrees, essentially like at volume for a lower price, I think it still works out for a lot of them in their favor. One of the interesting numbers that you threw in your article was that of Taco Bell, and they had a pilot version of something like this, and it boosted their retention among participants to 98%. And that's that that crazy. A lot of people would think, well, I don't want to work at Taco Bell or something. But, you know, you can move up into corporate structure. You can move up all over the place Mm -hmm. as you advance your education. And if the company themselves, they're footing the bill, but they're keeping so many more people I mean, that's a good benefit. And something that Bob Iger said as well, the Disney CEO, when we were chatting, is that in the meantime, you know, even if those employees who did get a full ride to University of Denver or a number of the schools that they've partnered with, and then they decide to up and leave as soon as they've gotten enough of their credits paid for, in the meantime, it does a lot of good in his view, you know, in terms of employee engagement, just a sense of like self-confidence that I have all of these new avenues available to me in my future that perhaps I didn't in the past. Kelsey G, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. This has been fun. 
All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.